This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I am joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. He's also the advisor on The Motley Fool's Rule Your Retirement newsletter. So wonderful to be here, Allison. So wonderful to have you. Today, we're going to talk about what really motivates you when it comes to what you buy and where you invest. If you like to armchair psychiatrist yourself, we've got three questions you can ask yourself to better understand why you're doing what you're doing with your money. We're also going to answer a listener question about when it makes sense to invest in yourself rather than in the market. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. It's time for Answers Answers, and today's question comes to us from Brent. He writes, How can I know when it would be more efficient to switch capital from my education to the market? I'm sure eventually education will only have ever-decreasing returns at some point. Is the return from a master's or a doctorate worth it when compared to the market average long-time return? Thank you. Brent. Well, Brad, that's a great question, and long-time listeners will know that... um, I think the cost of education is pretty high and it often doesn't really pay off. So it certainly makes sense to do some sort of cost benefit analysis. And it definitely varies by profession. But I'll start by just telling a little story about a woman I spoke with recently. She's in her mid 20s. She borrowed money to go out of state to a private college to get a social work degree. Oh, yeah. That does not pay well. Right. Okay. So, and then she got, could not find a job. So she's currently a nanny. And her question for me was should she borrow more money to get a master's degree in social work? And what I told her was, well, you just have to find out how much does that increase the chances that you will find a job, and how much will that pay off? What's the increase in the pay? And there are actually plenty of resources for that. You can go to just a regular job site, look for what positions are available and what the requirements are. Um, the Department of Labor also actually has a great site where it lifts out, lists out professions, and it gives you a summary of what the employment prospects are for that profession, average pay across the country, outlook for the next 10 years, so that's a good resource as well. Um, and I think you, you actually could do a comparison of the cost of getting, for example, a master's degree versus if you just invested that money. So let's say it cost you $50,000 to get that degree, put it in the market, market returns something like 7% a year. Historically, it's been closer to 10, but I think at today's valuations, you have to assume lower. In 10 years, you could double that. You'd have $100,000. Then you have to look at that job and say, okay, if I take myself out of the work workforce for two years, get the degree, how much more will I make? And if you really want to look at it as a net worth perspective, how much of that am I going to invest and set aside? Because if you increase your salary by $20,000 a year and you spend it all, from a financial perspective, you haven't gotten anywhere. So you could do those sort of calculations. And I think that's important to do. That said, there's also the whole life satisfaction aspect to it. So I've mentioned before on the show people who have actually taken money from their retirement accounts to get a new degree, to go into a profession that they enjoy. They won't be able to retire in their 60s, but they're okay with that because they have a job that they enjoy. So I would say to you, Brent, that you have to look specifically at what job you want to do. Do you actually need a degree to do that job? and then do the cost-benefit analysis. And I think the final factor for all of this is, are you going to be a happier person because of it? So there you go, Brent. That's what bro has to say. And of course, if you listeners have a question, you can email us at answers at fool.com. Every action you take with your money, whether it's buying a thing or investing in a stock or a mutual fund, it's motivated by a combination of three emotional 
benefits. And so today we're going to talk about those three emotional benefits, and then we're going to help you psychoanalyze yourself and your purchases and your investing to see if you're motivated by the right things to do the right things. This will be fun. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I think this is good. Well, how we got on this topic was I... um, I stumbled upon an article in the Wall Street Journal. It's an older article written by uh, Dr. Meyer Statman. He's a professor of finance at Santa Clara University, and apparently he's a high-regarded behavioral finance smarty pants. It's true. Yes, he is. And so he wrote this, I thought it was a terribly interesting piece, where he talks about what motivates us with our when it comes to how we use our money. And um, yeah, with so every, we're just going to break it down. Yeah, I mean, he's essentially <laughs> saying there, you every time you purchase something, and when you buy a stock, you're purchasing something just like you would a car or anything else, you're trying to attain one or more of three benefits. Yeah, that's pretty much what I said. Isn't that what I said? All right, well, let's just get into them. All right, the first one is, the first benefit is a utilitarian benefit. And essentially, this is, when you think of it, if you purchase a car, a car's benefit is that it gets you places. Right. You're asking, like, what does it do for me in my pocketbook? Purely for the benefit only. And um, when I read this, I thought a lot about the, the book, The Millionaire Next Door, which we've talked about before, and a formula that they have in there to determine whether, relative to your income, you are a prodigious accumulator of wealth or an under-accumulator. And that formula is your age times your income divided by 10. So if you're 40 years old, you make $100,000 a year you should have $400,000 in net worth, and that includes stocks and your home equity and all that stuff. The people who tend to be prodigious accumulators of wealth tend to be people like engineers or physicists, people who are looking at things purely for what it does for them. Also, auctioneers, because they know the value of things. Um, And then it also tends to be people who are in businesses that are not so glamorous, like janitorial services. They're looking for ways to make money. What does it do for me? I don't care whether it's the most glamorous job in the world. I just want to know that it's something that's going to help me achieve my goal. It also makes me think of like Steve Jobs and other um, famous entrepreneur, wealthy people who wear the same thing every day, right? right? Like Steve Jobs wore black, or he wore jeans and a black turtleneck every day because basically all he needed was clothes on his body, and he didn't want to waste any time thinking about fashion. Yes, and I'll point out, of course, that Steve Jobs didn't go to college either to pick up on our previous conversation of someone who was obviously obviously very successful without getting the college degree. All right. The second emotional benefit that motivates us with our money is expressive. So, taking the idea of the car, depending on what kind of car you buy, this helps you express to others your values. So, for example... Uh, I could buy any car in the world, but I'm going to choose to buy a Prius because it shows that I care about the environment. I could buy a Bentley, and it shows that uh, I am classy and wealthy. Right. In the article, he says it's it's a way these sort of benefits they convey to us, to yourself, and to others your values and your tastes and your status. So it could be jewelry like diamonds that really don't have a practical value. Um, I think it also can do with the roles that you choose in, in terms of your jobs. Like people get value of being generous, a philanthropist, uh, or you're the provider for your family. And I think a lot of people, this is one of the difficulties of retirement, is where people go from being like the breadwinner to not having that, and they've lost a little bit of their status of 
what they mean to their family and everything like that. Um, I thought one of the interesting examples that they used in the example in the article was the people who would choose to move somewhere where they would lower their taxes by four thousand dollars versus moving somewhere where they lowered their food costs by five thousand dollars because they hate taxes so much they would prefer to to go somewhere and save four thousand on taxes rather than saving five thousand. Obviously, it makes more sense to go to a place where you're going to save more on food, but because they identify so strongly with being anti-tax, they're willing to do that. Now, the study was actually kind of interesting. It also showed that people were willing to wait longer in line for an item where it was tax-free on that day versus waiting in line for an item with the same discount, but it was just a store-wide discount because they just want to stick it to the man. I think we all want to. I think we all want to. I don't mind paying taxes. It shows I made money that year. So. Well, that was interesting because the study also broke it down by your political leanings, and that's another part of the way you spend money that expresses your values and your belonging to a certain group. The people who identified themselves as Republicans or Libertarians were far more likely to do something to save taxes versus people who identified themselves as Democrats or Socialists. All right. Now, the next one, the third and final one, is emotional. So, so far, we've had we've had utilitarian. What does it do for me in my pocketbook? A car. It gets me places. Expressive. What does it say about me to others and myself? My Prius shows that I care about the environment. Final one, emotional. How does it make me feel? Well, because I drive this Prius, I feel like a virtuous human being. Or yeah. because I drive this Bentley, I um, feel really proud of being a fancy pants mucky muck. Right. And I, th- I think, frankly, emotional really is the foundation of everything. Even if you are the engineer who buys the um, Toyota versus buying the Bentley, you're doing it because you feel good about doing that. Someone who is by nature frugal and then for some reason ended up buying a Bentley, they're actually not going to feel very good <laughs> about themselves. right? I, I, I think people have sort of this internal thermostat of spending. And if you spend too much and you heat up, you start f- sweating a bit and feeling uncomfortable. So ultimately, almost all of our purchases are to make us feel good in some way or another. The problem is when you are doing these things to your detriment. The example in the article was about investing, showing studies that indicate people who trade too often actually have lower returns. But people get pleasure, some people get pleasure out of investing. It's a game for them. It's like, I think it's one thing is it's, it's just a hopeful activity. If I buy this stock, it could be the next Facebook or the next Microsoft or the next Apple. Um, there are people who, they say he cited a study of German investors that found that people who claim to enjoy investing trade twice as much. But that's not actually a very good thing to do. Right. Um, I guess also what you invest in, not just the fact that you're investing, but what you're specifically investing in also is a sign of what you value. Right. I mean, they use the example of people who, who go with hedge funds. And of course, if you say you're invested in a hedge fund that says something about you, you might be a little more sophisticated, you might be wealthier. Um, you come you're on. not more sophisticated because, as we all know, hedge fund investors don't make any money. Right. Yeah. If you look at the returns of hedge funds as a group, it's pretty sad. It's pretty pathetic. Partially because the, the typical cost is you pay 2% a year plus 20% of the profits to the hedge fund manager compared to about 1% a year for a mutual fund. It really doesn't make sense. But, but you feel good yeah, about it. Yeah, there's this shine to them where it's right. like, ooh, you're invested in a hedge fund. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's that's the key to it in terms of, all right, everyone has emotions, everyone buys for emotional reasons, but are, are the reason you're doing it, does it lead to a better outcome 
or is it actually hurting what you ultimately want to do? So when it comes to actually kind of psychoanalyzing your investments and your purchases, then does that mean asking yourself like the utilitarian question and then making sure it doesn't conflict with the answers to the expressive and the emotional? So for example, like if I go right now and look at our Jetta, our 2003 Jetta diesel, um, it is a very utilitarian car. Like it's been good to us. We appreciate it. Um, and there are things about driving our Jetta that, um, as far as like the expressive, what does it say about me to others? Well, it says that I don't really care about money too much because it's an old Jetta. But I'm kind of an aging hipster because well, it's that's an older thing. Jetta. For some then, people, being like coming off as frugal is like uh, you don't want to do that. I want to come off as cheap. But for other people, like they, that's a badge that's of honor, cool. right? That's so it, it sort of depends on your philosophies on that, and and. I'll use the example of something we did related to cars as well, and that we bought a used car about five months ago now, and it came down to two minivans, and one was much cheaper, probably about $5,000, but it was a little older, and it was definitely uglier. It was just an ugly car. <laughs> and my wife eventually said, I just don't want to drive that car. I don't want to get into that car. I don't want to drive it. So we paid for the other car. and. To this day, both of us, when we get in the new car, we're like, man, this is a great car. Is it worth $5,000? Probably not. I don't know. But we're happy with the purchase. We haven't regretted it. So I would say, you know, you start with utilitarian, like just from plain old money perspective or usefulness or efficiency, depending on what you're doing. This is the answer. Why am I gravitating towards this other thing? Is it because of emotions or I want to impress people or something like that? And just honestly ask yourself, is it worth it? I don't know. I I read a study recently that found that people who dress up nicer, actually uh, it could increase their testosterone level. And people perceive them, obviously, as um, a stronger person, a smarter person. So obviously, impressing people can have benefits. It could be worth the money. But you just have to be honest with yourself about that. And the other thing I would say is being honest about those good emotions, how long are they going to last? We often buy things because we want to buy them and we feel good for that day, week, maybe month, and then it just kind of fades. Other things, we always feel good about it. We still love the van. So I think you have to be honest in terms of like, okay, I know I'm going to get some pleasure from buying this thing. How long is that going to be last? Is it going to be worth the money that I'm giving up to do it? Remember when my husband and I first started investing, I think I'd been working at The Fool for maybe a few months at the time because he really he really hopped into it. And I remember he got really excited about investing and looking into like the potash industry. Yep. Right? And I'm like when we would be walking, we'd be walking to work at the time he didn't work at the Motley Fool, but we would still walk to the metro together. And I remember just being like, "What do you know about? Like, why do you want to invest in this? What do you What do you know about the potash industry?" And he started talking about like, "Oh, the cartels are so interesting and all this stuff." And I realized like the only and like, he doesn't listen to the show, so I can talk honestly about him. Um, <laughs> it's like in the back of my mind, I was thinking he just wants to invest in this because it seems super complicated and technical. Because it, it was like it was he had no business investing in it, but I think he liked. Like the idea of like, well, I'm investing in the potash industry. Yeah, and of course, it ended up being a whole stinker because you know, like I said, cartels, <laughs> not great. And um, 
And so I think he learned a valuable lesson from there. Of course, right. as we were walking the metro, I just kept my mouth shut and went, oh, that's very interesting. Because it's a lesson he needed to learn for himself. Yeah. But that's I feel th- like people invest in really complicated stuff, too, because they want to, like, at cocktail parties, these cocktail parties that we never get invited to. Kind Thanks of be a lot, like, everyone. Yeah. Well, talking about, like, oh, well, I'm in, have you heard of this company? They make something super complicated in a super complicated industry, and I'm invested in it. Yeah. Well, there are a couple of issues that I would take with the article, and one of them is along these lines that um, people do turn to investing for entertainment or as a hobby, and it, it gave the idea that this was bad. And I certainly know people who have also said this were experts that I respect. They say, your investing should be boring. It should be buy and hold low-cost index funds, and you maybe fiddle with them once every few years. On the other hand, I also know that people get more engaged with their finances when they get engaged with their investing, and they look for ways to save more money because then they can buy more stocks. Um, so, you know, that's one of those fine line types of things. And what I would say to the people who look at investing as a hobby, if you're saying, "Okay, I'm doing this because I can beat the market," and this was raised in the article too about how the majority of people think they can, even though history shows that most people can't. Sorry. Look at your own evidence. Like, if you have established that you are a good investor, go right ahead. It's a great hobby. And if it gets you engaged in your portfolio and your finances, that's awesome. If you've been doing it for a few years, but it, it turns out that actually you've been underperforming the market, admit that it was not the best thing for you to do. Everyone makes mistakes. Suck it up. And at least put a good part of your portfolio in a low-cost index fund. Keep a little bit on the side if you want to still do the individual investing, but just look for the proof that yes, this thing that you are doing that may not make total sense is something you personally should be doing because you can do it. So I guess the takeaway here is when you're thinking about what you're purchasing, when you're thinking about what you're investing in, ask yourself these three questions that kind of get to the motivating benefits, emotional benefits you get out of stuff and investments and make sure that you're being honest with yourself. Right, because your <laughs> ultimate goal, at least when it comes to investing, is to increase your net worth to accomplish a goal. And if you are doing something that you think makes sense and it feels good, but undercuts that ultimate goal, maybe you should stop. All right, so the questions again. What does it do for me in my pocketbook? That's your underlying goal. Then, what does it say about me to others? And then finally, how does it make me feel? And bro says, Really, really focus on that. How does it make you feel? Because that's that's you think what is the big motivator for most people. Yeah, and to some degree, it's it's how you feel today versus feel tomorrow. Like it may feel good now to purchase something versus invest that money, but 10, 20, 30 years from now, when you're in retirement, you're going to feel much better about having that money. I feel good about this time we've spent together. I feel good too. <laughs> like in a utilitarian sort of way. In a utilitarian <laughs> yes, sort of way. In a totally platonic and utilitarian sort of way. So before we move on, I want to remind everyone that they still have a chance to win a whole investing library, courtesy of the Motley Fool's family of podcasts. So head to fool.com slash podcast to listen to our super podcast, where a number of fools like David Gardner, Morgan Housel, and our very own bro mm-hmm. share their favorite investing books, and then you can also enter to win those books. Fun! Good luck! That's right. Go to fool.com slash podcast. And, and hopefully you'll win some books. I'm rooting for you. So nice. So nice. I got you. In honor of April Fool's Day, a day near and dear to our heart here at The Motley Fool. Yep. It used to be at the beginning of our fiscal year, but we have changed that. But it's still our national holiday. Yeah. 
national holiday. So we decided to count down five of the best times that the economy or markets decided to play a prank on the world's greatest experts, pundits, and leaders of industry. You know, the smartest guys in the room who maybe weren't. So, bro, what's the first one? Well, the first one, we're going to reach all the way back to the Great Depression and a guy named Irving Fisher. Now, most people probably haven't heard of him, but he's actually... If you were asked a bunch of economists who was one of the greatest economists in U.S. history, his name would be up there. He's a fascinating guy, certainly one of the first like celebrity economists in our country. Um, he didn't get everything right, though. However, uh, three days before the Great Depression, he said, Stocks, stock prices have reached what looks like a permanently high plateau. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, the market started to drop, and he still kept saying things like um, the market was only shaking out of the lunatic fringe, and he kept saying, no, it's okay, security values in most instances were not inflated. But of course, in the course of the Great Depression, the market dropped 80-90%, depending on what type of stocks you owned. So his reputation was significantly um, hampered, destroyed, <laughs> destroyed. <laughs> deflated. His, his reputation went into a bear market. Yeah, um, he took it on the chin. And he actually he then came up with a whole theory about deflation, which actually which is, which was very influential today. But obviously, at that one point, he was not doing so well. All right, what is our second example? Our second example also goes back to that time. This one comes from Jay Raskob, who was a senior financial executive at GM. And in the summer of 1929, again, just a couple of months before the Great Depression, um, he was interviewed for the Ladies' Home Journal, and the article was entitled, Everybody Ought to Be Rich. He said that anybody could just put $15 into the stock market, and within 20 years, they'd have $80,000. And that's by the way, a 24% annualized return. But at that point, that seemed like just a, an obvious thing because the stock market was going so well. Then the stock market tanked right after that. And again, he was um, often blamed for encouraging the average individual to get into the stock market. This anecdote is actually uh, kicks off the book Stocks for the Long Run by Jeremy Siegel because Siegel says, yes, he was wrong at that point. But if you followed his advice, while you would not have earn 24% a year, you still would have done better than any of the other investments. Even within four years, you would have outperformed treasuries. Um, so, that's one of, the, one of the interesting things about this. The guy looked like a buffoon for saying this, but if you actually followed his advice, you would have done better in just than if you had put that money in just about any other asset class. All right. And what is our third story? Third story actually comes from a cover of Business Week back in 1979, and the cover was the death of equities. In the 1970s, it was not a good time to be a stock investor. In the early 70s, there was the crash of the Nifty 50, which were like these blue chip stocks that everyone was supposed to hold forever, but they declined somewhere like 40, 50% in two years. And then there was inflation. And at that point, the best thing to hold was gold and oil. So at the end of the 70s, Business Week comes out with this cover, the death of equities, basically saying, it just doesn't make sense to own stocks anymore. The place to be is real assets. Well, what happened? So gold peaked around 1980, and it didn't get back to that price level until the 2000s. Whereas at the end of 1979, when this cover came out, uh, the Dow was at around 800. In 1989, a decade later, the Dow was at 2,700. 1999, it was up over 9,000. Obviously, that was a great time to be a stock investor. I believe we are on the fourth Number story. four, and this is more recent, only 11 years ago. In 2005, Ben Bernanke, who was not yet the Fed chair, he was an advisor to 
George W. Bush. He said on CNBC, quote, We've never had a decline in housing prices on a nationwide basis. What I think is more likely is that house prices will slow, maybe stabilize. I don't think it's going to drive the economy too far from its full employment path, though. Tell me what happened then, bro. That didn't happen. Uh. <laughs> so, we had the worst stock market crash since the Great Depression. We did have our first nationwide decline in housing prices, although just recently, by the way, we're just now getting to a point where home equity has reached those pre-crash levels. Oh, so really? That is good news. Um, and I think a lot of people would say about Ben Bernanke, he didn't anticipate what was happening, but once it happened, he did a pretty good job with helping us through it. Not everyone agrees with that. So, you know, I think I'm, I'm not saying this to necessarily to say Ben Bernanke's a moron, but I'm really pointing out that even smart, well-intentioned people don't get everything right. People who have literally all the numbers. All the numbers, all the brains. Um, and you did, the thing is, it's the nature of predictions, which applies to all things in life, including what career you take, what, how you're going to invest, where you send your kids to school. You take all the information that's available, you make the best decision you can, and just know that sometimes it's just not going to work out. Yeah. All right. And what is our fifth and final story? Our fifth and final story, this comes from a guy named Neural Rubini, who was a NYU professor. And he got very famous during the Great Recession because in the mid-2000s leading up to the Great he predicted a lot of what ha- would happen. Um, he got to be known as Dr. Gloom. Hmm. Um, and this is a situation of someone who is just always bearish, and so he was right. However, in 2008, in December 2008, Fortune magazine asked him what his predictions were for 2009. He said, quote, for the next 12 months, I would stay away from risky assets, stay away from the stock market, I would stay away from commodities, I would stay away from credit, both high yield and high grade, I would stay in cash, cash cash-like investments, or short and longer-term government bonds. It's better to stay in things with low returns rather than to lose 50% of your wealth. So that's what you thought you should do in 2009. However, 2009 was a great year for the stock market, almost returning almost 30%. As for short-term Treasury fund, Vanguard's fund, at least for 2009, returned 1.4%. The Vanguard long-term Treasury fund actually lost 12.1%, one of the worst years to be in bonds. So, this is just another example of there are people who will get predictions right at some point, but if they're always making that prediction, you have to really consider whether you want to follow their advice. Right. And I do have one more. Oh, I, I a bonus one. Five. Ooh. A bonus okay. one, because this All is right. one that came true, and both you and Rick can play. Who said this in 2007? In today's regulatory environment, it's virtually impossible to violate rules. This is something that the public really doesn't understand. It's impossible for a violation to go undetected, certainly not for a considerable period of time. I have no idea. Bernie Madoff. Oh. Yeah. And he got it right to a certain degree. You can't get away with it forever. And he was right. <laughs> so I guess he's the winner of the segment? <laughs> Congratulations, Bernie. April Fools. April Fools. <laughs> All right. That's the show, kiddos. It is edited foolishly by Rick Engdahl. Our email is, of course, answers at fool.com. And again, don't forget to head to fool.com slash podcast to listen to our super podcast of investing book recommendations. And of course, enter for your chance to win the whole investing library. It's going to look so good on your bookshelf. (laughs) All right. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish. Stay foolish.